Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So, um, just wanted to welcome Ramon, who um, imports Bolivian wine with Truthfully Imports, and we're going to talk about Bolivian wine, because m- many of you may not know that Bolivia produces wine, but it seems like there's actually a, a growing wine scene there, which we're going to talk about in this episode. So first of all, Ramon, could you introduce yourself and your background in wine? Uh, yeah, Ramon Escobar. Um, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin originally. Uh, my father is from Bolivia. And, um, and I came into the wine world from, from not the wine world. Uh, I was um, in the Foreign Service, the U.S. Diplomatic Corps. Um, and I came into wine through economic development. I see the wine sector as being a, a, a way... A, a, uh, a way to drive transformative change and empower people to, to transform their own economies, given the the qualities of uh, of wine. So it wasn't drinking wine as such, more of a economic way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's funny because I, you know, I sheepishly admit now, you know, the, my palate was was not a very impressive thing when I started this company. <laughs> I was probably more prone to do a Jaeger bomb than to drink a nice wine. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I've learned, I've come to appreciate wine and what it is and, you know, the, the beautiful thing it is. And I think probably what made it such an easy landing spot for me in transition is, you know, being a diplomat, um, you know, living around the world, you're, you're often exposed to different cultures and, and, and something that I really enjoyed about, you know, that career. And wine is a wonderful gateway to cultures and traditions and histories and people. Um, and it's a great way to share uh, memories, you know, with when you're visiting another country, is drinking their local wines, and and so it, it, it was. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a hard sell. Let's put it that way. Once I figured out the economic piece and that wine could meaningfully drive sustainable impact, then it became pretty easy to fall into fall in love with wine. So, can you talk a little bit more about that? About the economic empowerment or benefits of wine? Yeah. So, it, you know, we, we came up with a thesis that I wrote. Um, and posted on our Medium account. And it really does focus on three different aspects. So the first, first element is wine is, is, a, is a differentiated good. So unlike uh, commodities, which most developing countries tend to depend on commodities for their economic uh, engines, and unlike that, you can differentiate a wine. You know, you can't really differentiate a, a gas molecule or you know, uh, an iron or, you know, iron ore from one country is very similar to iron ore from another country. There's very little different differentiation. Wine, on the other hand, you have a whole story that goes behind it, right? You have a story and you have um, the complexity of um, uh, the local traditions and the different varietals and terroir and all these different elements, right? The winemakers themselves, their stories, uh, that differentiates the good. And then the second piece uh, that makes wine a, a good target for developing uh, for economic development is it is a value-added good. So most again commodities, you you are at the lowest rung of the value chain when that product leaves the country. Wine, on the other hand, on the other hand, you're <clears throat> you're picking the grape, you're you know destemming, you're sorting, you're fermenting, you're making the wine, then you're bottling and packaging. So the whole value chain is captured. Um, in that country of origin, and and that is in, that is very powerful in, in an economic sense. And then third, the final element 
is there's this whole knock-on effect for the whole local business ecosystem. Because wine has all of these different value-add processes, it feeds into other industries. Just think about tourism in the wine sector. How many agricultural goods have a tourism industry that's built around it? Very few. Um, in fact, I don't know of any. And so the, 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 but tourism bottling printers, like there's a whole thing that goes into it. So this, this uh, dynamic effect in the local economy is what creates opportunities for social upward mobility and diversification of their local economy. So that's, that's why wine is a really impressive uh, tool for economic development. And you chose Bolivia because your father's from Bolivia, but maybe also because of poverty and you wanted to help farmers and industry and so on. That's right. So uh, the, really, the, the, the way I came about it more specifically is, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin. I, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I, you know, I grew up in not like the nicest part of town or anything like that. And, you know, had my own challenges uh, as, a, as an adolescent growing up there. Um, but whenever I went to Bolivia and visited my family there, whatever obstacles I had in front of me, like their obstacles were much greater. And I would always have more opportunities just because of my geographic, where I was born. And in, 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 I remember when I'm tripping, I was 14 years old and my sister and I went, I just remember thinking how, you know, unjust that was. It just didn't, it didn't line up, right? And, and so from that point on in my life, I always said, you know, to myself, like, there's something I'm going to do, firstly, to help my family, and then secondly, to maybe hopefully drive some impact uh, and, and right that wrong um, in some way. And so when I got back from Baghdad uh, in 2013, I was in Washington, I was back in Washington. I just saw that there was this whole craft cocktail scene. There was this whole, you know, like kind of, there was just an appetite for the different and the unique, as long as the quality was good. And so I got a few people together that I, you know, some friends and and acquaintances of friends who knew the wine world much better than me. Um, And we started to invest and try to figure it out. and, and that's kind of how we got to the wine area. It was um, this tool to, to uplift people. And now it's like what's, what's I think what's exciting is like, it, although we'll talk about Bolivia today, is that this model applies to any country with a tr- tradition, a winemaking tradition that also faces development challenges. And, and the wine sector can play, can play an important role in their development. Uh, and so that's why we'll be uh, next month actually launching Mexican and Lebanese wines on our platform. In regards to Bolivia, how established was the wine industry when you started investigating working there? Well, Bolivia has been making wine for over 400 years. So it's very established. Um, it's just very small. It's a, it's a tiny production. Bolivia's total production of wine is about one or one and a half percent of Argentina's to put things in perspective. Yet Bolivia has been making wine as long, if not longer, than Argentina. Most of Bolivia's wine production was sold, I mean, the vast majority, 99.9% of the Bolivian wine production was sold domestically to Bolivians and was never really exported for a bunch of different reasons. One scale, you know, like most most importers of wine, whether they're in Europe or the United States, they want to have the big bulk, you know, production so they can have economies of scale and all that. And Bolivia just doesn't have that. Two is infrastructure. Bolivia is the poorest country in South America and has pretty not great infrastructure. And so they've always had these hurdles to be able to share their wines with the world. 
Um, but in 2013, which is the year that I, that I incorporated, it turned out that uh, Aranjuez, one of our wines, is fantastic, Aranjuez Tanat, uh, went to a blind international competition for Tanat in Uruguay. And you probably, as you probably know, Matthew, the Uruguayans do a very good Tanat. And uh, they won this blind taste gold medal. It's the same thing with California and France mm-hmm. deal. And in fact, the, the, the judges, they didn't even believe that it was the first time a Bolivian winery had ever participated yeah. in an international competition, at least of that stature. And, and then let alone win a gold medal. And the, the guy said, uh, we're not going to give you the gold medal until we go to Bolivia and taste out of the wine, out of the barrel, because we don't believe that you guys did this. Like, Bolivia doesn't make wine that's good. Like, that was their, you know, their stereotype. And, uh, and so they went to Bolivia, tasted it, and they're like, wow, oh, yeah, I actually did it. Um, and since then now, we've, I mean, our wineries have, have done fantastic, great write-ups, great recognition. Our portfolio has been in nine Michelin star restaurants in the United States. Like, the wine, the quality is phenomenal. Um, but it's all small production. Uh, even the biggest players would be considered small in Argentina or Chile. Yeah, and before we get into Bolivia itself, how are, where are they distributed in the U.S.? So we are the importers, and we're, we're primarily selling through our online platform, truefly.com. It allows us, again, distributors, like the big national distributors are just not interested in small SKU productions and, and all that. And so although we've been able to be targeted and focused on getting our product into really good restaurants, the best way to get it nationwide is through truefly.com, C-H-U-F-L-Y.com. And do you distribute to all states or most states? What are the states that we can that are allowed to have shipments? Yeah. So most. So let's talk about Bolivia then, because it's, it's a landlocked country. I know that. And I imagine altitude is really important for uh, grape growing. Indeed. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you probably know this. Uh, I love when we do virtual tastings with consumers. I, I love to ask them, you know, like, where, what do you think Bordeaux's elevation is? You know, average elevation of Bordeaux. And people give out their guesses, and, you know, it's like 100 or 200 feet above sea level, right? Then you go to Napa, you know, if you're lucky, it's about 1,000, 1,100 on average, right? Then you go to Mendoza, right? Like, the probably the most well known high elevation, uh, you know, wine country. And you're averaging about 2,900 feet above sea level. In Bolivia, all wine production starts at 5,200 feet above sea level. So there are no low elevation, like everything is high elevation, the whole darn country. And because, uh, and that's, and so there's several things to talk about there. So that's because Bolivia is in, in the tropics. The entire country's geography is in the tropics, in the tropical area. Um, Bolivia, 40% of its land mass is, uh, of, of its territory is um, rainforest, Amazon. Um, this is not the type of climate that you do grape growing in, you know, for winemaking in particular. Um, and so you have to go way up in this elevation to find the right climate uh, for that. And the elevation is important because, as you know, I'm sure many of your listeners know, the, the, the thinner the atmosphere, the more intense the UV rays from the sun are. And grapes, like any other living thing, protects itself from uh, high-intensity UV rays. And so it gets a thicker skin, which then, you know, translates to interesting aromas, more complexity, um, and it can really change the nature of the grape. It also, for red wines in particular, increases the amount of antioxidants uh, in, in the wine, which is, you know, which is a nice thing, too, to <laughs> be drinking a slightly healthier wine when you, when you, if you are going to choose to drink a red wine. And so that, that elevation is really unique. It plays a role. I think probably the most 
dramatic expression of elevation that you can find is with some of the whites. Um, you know, Torrentes, Mosquito of Alexandria. You know, you have a you know, very sweet smelling nose. I, like I always joke around, it's like you get two, you know, with oblivion white, you get two wines for the price of one. Because on the nose, you're expecting this really sweet, you know, floral, aromatic, soapy kind of wine. And yet uh, when you taste it, it's bone dry. And there's this ripping acidity that just keeps it so crisp and fresh. And that that's all the elevation talking. That's the, that's the elevation doing its thing. Um, another really great expression of elevation is with is with the Tanakh grape. Uh, you know, a very tannic grape, tanniny, you know, uh, you got to have that glass of water next to you, you know, rinse it down or have a big piece of beef to, to pair it with. With Bolivia's elevation, it just tames that Tanakh grape in a way that is, uh, you can make, you can have that Adonis Tanakh, which we always sell out of because it's just phenomenal. That wine is, you can drink it just like a wine. You can drink it just, you don't even need a meal or a glass of water next to you to do it. And it's phenomenal. That's precisely why it won a gold medal. It's had, it retained all of these characteristics of a Tanakh, yet uh, had the roundness and softness of something that's, that's a little more sophisticated. Uh, so yeah, so the, there's three primary valleys that are growing wine today, um, all of which, well, two of which are about 6,000 feet average, 6,500 6, feet above sea level. And then that's Tarija in the south, which borders Argentina. And then uh, Samaipata, which is in the east, and actually is the, the edge of the Amazon. It's probably the only, one of the only, the 1750 wines, which are phenomenal that we have. Those, that, that vineyard, I would bet, is probably one of the only vineyards in the world, if not the only one in the world, where you could be sipping on wine and 20 minutes later jump into a tropical waterfall. Um, it's just the microclimate area. It's, it's just phenomenal. It's just fantastic. Um, and then you have the third valley, which is out in the west, is the Sinti Valley. And it's really not a valley. It's a canyon. It's, it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's really hard to get to. It's super remote. And it's over 8,000 feet above sea level. And this is the origin of Bolivian winemaking. Like this is the probably the first valley that was uh, became a serious producer of wine in Bolivia's history, and probably one of the first valleys to grow wine, for, grapes for winemaking in in the Americas. Punta. Like I wouldn't say it's the first, but it's got to be one of the first. Um, this, we're talking the early 16th century, and that you know that canyon is phenomenal. It's, it's it, it'd be like seeing the going to the, a smaller, slightly smaller, not too much smaller, but smaller version of the Grand Canyon. Uh, and then it being dotted with vineyards uh, at the base. It's really remarkable. Yeah, without going into Bolivian and Peruvian history, back when those grapes were planted, it would have been Upper Peru, wouldn't it? It would have been like the huge... Upper Peru, yeah. exactly, yeah. So that's when the, the missionaries came down, planted there, then went to Chile, and then went to Mendoza. It's kind of their journey. Lots right, of so the, the, the reason why the, the Sinti Valley is so important in Bolivian's wine history is because the richest city in, in the Spanish Empire um, in the 16th century was Potosí, which was the home of Cerro Rico. The city was founded because of Cerro Rico, which was the largest silver mine in the world at the time. And, um, and because of all the concentration of wealth and power uh, for the Spanish colonial period was in that town, um, that town but that town sat at 14,000 feet above sea level. You can only grow quinoa and potatoes at that <laughs> elevation. You can't grow grapes. And so the Franciscan, Dominican, and, and Jesuits 
had to go find the nearest area that could be that was ripe for winemaking and that was the Sinti Valley which 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 from what I understand there, as legend goes it was a one to two month donkey ride um to Potosi so that, I guess back in those days that that's close but <laughs> and so that was the most you know the prime kind of area and so that's where you have these these vines like I've been to vineyards I'm not kidding uh, I have videos like there's a we have videos of this uh in our in some of our media there are vineyards that are hundreds of years old that are growing in forests. Like the trees, the, the, the grapevines are climbing up into the trees. You have to climb the trees to pick the grapes. And those grape varietals are not, they, they don't exist anywhere else in, in, in the whole world, just in that valley. There's one that's called Vistrokenia that we just got approved for the first time ever in the United States. And we'll be importing that next uh, later this year. Uh, it'll be exclusive for our wine club, super small production, literally trees, vines that are that are hundreds of grapevines that are hundreds of years old, growing untrellised in trees, quince trees, peppercorn, fig. It's, it's incredible. It's like some of the most incredible things you've ever seen in, in the wine world, how old this region is in terms of winemaking. And do the trees actually impart any aromas in the wine? Do you get that? Oh, yeah. yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I'm not kidding. It's a forest that happens to have grapevines growing around them, the trees. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Like it, sometimes the grapevines are so thick that you, you can't tell which one's the tree and which one's the grapevine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's grapevines that have outlived the tree. Like you can see the grapevine kind of how it was entangled on a tree and then the tree's gone. Like there's no tree anymore. You know, it's, it's unreal. It's beautiful. It's a phenomenal place. So did those vines just kind of develop naturally or were they planted with the trees and then just... Yeah, they're, they're what the, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, you know, a billion times more about wine than I do, but they're what I've come to learn are native varietals. So, you know, obviously grapes came from Europe to the New World, but um, there are some varietals that sort of crossbred on their own and don't, and, you know, created a new grape varietal that was native to that area. And so Vistrokenia is one of those. The best guess, no one really knows, um, but the best guess is that it's a cross between uh, Negra Criolla or Mission, and um, and uh, Muscat of Alexandria, which are two predominant grapes that were grown there, the red and the white. The, the bunch, the bunch of grapes will have both red and white grapes in one bunch. Um, super, super cool, interesting. Yeah, that sounds completely unique in every aspect. So unreal. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 we went there. We went like the we were with one of the winemakers. He makes just a, a few hundred cases a year, and he told us about one of these forests. I've been to a couple of these great forests because they're kind of dotted throughout this valley, this canyon. And he told me about this one. And he's like, but it's a whole day. It takes two and a half hours just to get there on this treacherous mountain road. We got stuck twice. Like you, you, you shoot your whole day. Like that's the only thing you can do. And I was like, uh, yeah, no, that's what I want to do. Let's go. <laughs> so then we got up at like four in the morning the next morning and drove out there. Beautiful. Marcelino, the guy, it's four generations now. They don't even know how old the vineyard is because they only know it from, their, from his great-grandfather who taught his grandfather how to take care of these vines. There's no treatments or anything. You pick it with a basket, you climb up into the trees. and pick it. It's like this whole thing that they, they, you know, one family's taught the next family generation. It's phenomenal. There's yeah. nothing like it in the world, I guarantee you, Matthew. I don't know anything like that, so uh, I believe you. And I guess that's a really good, unique selling point for Bolivia in explaining the wines and why they're different and why you should try them 
there's just not going to be like yeah. Argentinian or Chilean wines. And you know, and what's 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 great about this is every country has its stories. You know, every country has its its traditions and its and its uniqueness. I think Bolivia is you know really exceptional things, but I think that you know, I mean, I love Mexican wine country. Like I think the Valle de Guadalupe is beautiful. There's so much potential in Ojo Negro and these these newer kind of areas. Um, the Bajio region, Querétaro, Guanajuato, are starting to make. There's some really young winemakers that are that are starting to do some great things. And everyone has their their tradition, their piece, you know, the, their story to tell. And what's fun about going to these you know regions like Bolivia is these are stories that have never been told before, you know. And and people are bringing their own cultural traditions and their own histories to these wines in a way that. You know, you just don't get in in this sort of bulk mass-produced wine. I mean, seventy-five percent of wine consumed in the United States is is controlled by what four or five conglomerates. Like, you know, it's it's hard to really find these stories, and and we're hoping that our platform will be that that mechanism to do it. And you mentioned uh, wine tourism, that wine generates tourists and brings them to the place. Putting COVID aside. Is that something you've seen develop over the last um, eight years? Yes, and I think we play an, uh, an important role in growing it. Um, we've we've taken now, I'd say, well over a hundred people um, to Bolivia, uh, to Bolivian wine country, um, to start getting more exposure to the area, and they're starting to develop the the, the regions are starting to develop a tourism industry. And what's really beautiful about it is. Um, because of our success in the U.S., particularly with the prestigious placements we've had, and some and some success that some of the wineries have had in Europe, um, it's it's I think led to a sense of pride among Bolivians themselves uh, for their own wine. You know, the, the the tragedy of you know the developing world is often people um, from those countries uh, sort of you know have hold their own production like any kind of quality value added you know good. Um, they hold it in low esteem and, and sort of, you know, aspire for the European or the U.S. or whatever. Um, I think we're, we're breaking that, you know, and we're setting, we're like, you know, telling Blues, you should be proud. Like, these are, this is an amazing tradition. You have amazing products here. These Bolivian winemakers are, are doing phenomenal things and they're competing toe-to-toe with, you know, the best wineries in the world. And you know, take note. And so, during COVID, actually, um, you know, one of our winery partners, in particular, seventeen fifty, they saw a big bump up in tourism, domestic tourism, uh, that that really helped keep their winery afloat. Well, it's a similar story to California. Americans wouldn't take California wine seriously until the French realized it was actually quite good, and all of a sudden, Americans would buy domestic wine. So you do need that international recognition to prove that it, it is actually good. Yeah, and Argentina is another great example about tourism. Like, I did some research into the the economic, you know, role the, of that wine sector in in Argentina and their economic history. Because you're probably aware, Argentina has a, a tendency to do boom bust cycles more frequently than they probably would like to. Um, and what's been amazing is how resilient the Argentine wine industry has been relative to the rest of the economy. And, and a big chunk of that is attributed to the tourism factor because the, the tourism piece continues to support, you know, the wineries and, and uh, provide them another outlet if um, international markets collapse or domestic markets or whatever. And so it's, 
it's proven in the data, and that's you know that's how we are. Like we 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 want our impact to be meaningful, intentional, deliberate. And so when we when we think about these things, we're always thinking about it that way. And so that's why we've gone out of our way to take people down, influencers and stuff down to one country and, and promote it that way. So what would a t- wine tasting experience in Bolivia be like? Well, it depends which valley you're in. The, the main valley, Tarija, where most of the wineries are and most of the production is, would be very vibrant. So for example, the, the wine t- tastings that we've done uh, down there, would usually involve like local dancers, right? You know, like, you know, beautiful, colorful outfits doing traditional dances um, that are hybrid of, you know, Spanish and indigenous traditions, uh, lots of live music, and then just an incredible scenery. I mean, like all wine countries are beautiful, but the Andes Mountains uh, and sitting 5,000 feet above sea level is pretty remarkable. It's hard to, it's hard to compare. And so, yeah, and then you're in, and then in, in, uh, in, in Tarija, you would be able to visit several wineries in a day, for example. Um, they're, they're sort of sparsed out. There's a couple of valleys within the main valley of Tarija, Santa Ana, La Concepcion, um, and they have different wineries, different styles. And then in Samaipata, which is a much smaller uh, valley and much, much fewer, there's only two or three producers, it would be more of like you're hanging out in this small, this kind of bohemian town that's on the edge of the Amazon rainforest. Uh, you can, you know, drink wine by day and then, you know, in, uh, or in the morning go for a hike in a fern forest or go swimming in, you know, tropical river slash waterfall and then spend the afternoon on a winery that's in a cool climate valley akin to like a Willamette or something. Cool. Are the restaurants as well? Or... Yeah. Yeah. The, the restaurant scene is, is, is quite nice in Samaipata. It's a small town though. There's not like tons of options, but... Um, but they're great. And in Tarija too. Now Tarija is, is, um, is beef country. So there's a lot of great steak joints. Uh, um, and that's really the predominant kind of like dish down there. And they have a lot, they have a couple traditional things that you can do at smaller restaurants, like uh, Chancho a la Cruz, which is, you know, pig on the cross is basically what it is. And slow cooked over the whole course of the whole day. Um, good stuff. Well, you did send me a couple of wines, which I tried a couple of weeks ago. Um, a Syrah and a Cabernet Franc from... One was from 1750 and one was from Aranjuez. And I tasted them with my wife, who's in the wine industry, and a wine writer as well, and we were really impressed by the quality. We didn't really know what to expect. They were, they were very good and really held their own against other South American wines or international wines, I thought. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that was your experience. The, the Cap Franc is one of my favourites, that Aranjuez Cap Franc, because it... It sort of um, it defies the the what you expect, you know. Like you expect that overly peppery green, you know, like that, you know, like one of one of my friends who's a wine, you know, wine person. She's like, you know, Cab Franc is a great spice. Like you 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 mix it in to give it a little little peppery, you know, to your to to whatever red blend you're making. Um, but you know, rarely is it this enjoyable wine just on its own and that's a you know um 100 cap franc really really fantastic yeah glad you liked it yeah it's very enjoyable well um i think that's been a good uh, cover coverage of bolivia lots of different aspects to talk about there the sustainable the economic aspects which is certainly very um important and very current i think around the world in different ways i think in, in wine people talk about sustainability a lot and they talk about the vineyard 
and water usage and so on and so forth but economically being sustainable is just as important because what's the point of being sustainable today if you can't be sustainable tomorrow it's, as I think you've been describing it's all part of a system isn't it yes yes and you know and I think that's it I think it's a comment upon us in the wine industry you know it's important that the wine is high quality right like we all want to drink good wine that's well made it's important that there's environmental you know responsibility taken into account sustainability but I think we also need to add on that next question you know which is is this changing people's lives for the better is this helping you know communities thrive and empowering people to to uh, live a better life and um, and the, the great thing is, is the answer is if you do it right and you focus on you know countries that maybe aren't in the spotlight you can have a big impact that way it's great that you're uh, endeavoring to do so and seem to be doing so successfully as well yeah we got a long ways to go yeah. but uh, we're <laughs> off to a good start <laughs> good well thank you for joining me it's been a really interesting conversation and I hope listeners know more about Bolivian wine than they did 30 minutes ago. Wonderful. Thank you, Matthew, for taking an interest. We really appreciate it. Thank you.